This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you and sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Like most of you, we're on holiday now, and we thought you might like to hear some of our best stories from 2021. This week, Bill Southworth looks at the Dunedin reaction to the death of Queen Victoria. Gregor Campbell brings us part two of a horse-whipping saga, and in the first of a new series called Memories, Judy Southworth interviews someone who grew up on a tiry dairy farm in the 40s and the 50s. The recent death of Prince Philip attracted extensive news coverage. It aroused our curiosity as to what the reaction must have been to the news in 1901 when Queen Victoria had died. We looked to the monarchy much more in those days and were very loyal subjects of the largest empire the world has ever known. This report from Bill Southworth. Queen Victoria, head of the British Empire and Empress of India, had ruled over 460 million of her empire's subjects longer than most people had been alive. In January 1901, she was holidaying at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight when she fell seriously ill. The newly invented system of telegraph brought this news to New Zealand. The telegraph also allowed our newspapers to run, almost hour by hour, a blow-by-blow account of the Queen's final hours. The Otago Daily Times received its first telegram telling it that Victoria was ill at 4.30 in the afternoon of January the 19th. A court circular announces that of late the Queen has not been in her usual health. She is unable to take her customary drives. Unofficial advices state there is no immediate cause for alarm. Then, next day, January the 20th, at 2.45pm, another telegram of a more serious kind was received. The Queen is worse. Then, at seven minutes past five... The Prince of Wales has gone to Osborne, and the royal family has been summoned. The Kaiser, Victoria's grandson, has started for England. The next day, January the 21st, at 36 minutes past midnight... The Queen suffered on Saturday from great physical prostration, and her symptoms are causing anxiety. Then, 19 minutes later, a hint that worse was to come. A private cable received tonight asserts that Her Majesty the Queen is hopelessly ill. Received the next day, January the 22nd, at 40 minutes past midnight. The Queen is sinking fast. Scores of pressmen were now waiting at the gates of Osborne, and immense crowds had gathered outside the mansion house to await bulletins. Business was at a standstill. In Dunedin, a large public meeting was held at the Agricultural Hall to offer up prayers for Victoria. At its conclusion, led by the Citizens' Band, the congregation sang, God Save the Queen, for what they knew would be the last time. A similar meeting was held in the square at Port Chalmers, attended by a large crowd of its townspeople. During the service, the last telegram about the Queen's failing health to be received by their Tag Daily Times was read out by the local postmaster. Accompanied by the Port Chalmers Naval Band, those gathered there sang the hymn, Abide With Me, 
and the meeting then concluded with God Save the Queen, reportedly sung with great fervour. On January 23rd, just before midnight, the final brief telegram was received. The Queen is dead. Victoria, who was 81, had died of a blood clot on the brain, or in other words, a stroke. The news seemed to hit Dunedin like a thunderclap. The next day's Otago Daily Times carried the following report. Absolutely the first intimation that the citizens of Dunedin had of the closing of the most glorious reign that the history of the British Empire has known was contained in the display of the flag at the telegraph office at half-mast high. That signal was capable of but one sorrowful interpretation. There were thousands of people massed in the precincts of the Triangle, on the hillside overlooking the Triangle, in First Church grounds, and on the passenger overbridge at the railway. The tidings came through the display at half-mast of the Union Jack at the flagpole of the Daily Times office. And then a melancholy interest was taken in watching the other flags in the neighbourhood drop to half-mast. That at the Terminus Hotel was the first to be silently lowered, then that at the Equitable Insurance Buildings, then that at the Union Company's offices, and next the tolling of bells fell upon the ear. The news from the death chamber overshadowed everything else. For the time, there was nothing but this talked about. In subdued voices and grave tones, the situation was earnestly discussed by little parties of men and women. At the Stock Exchange, the chairman delivered a eulogy and immediately suspended business for the day. Many public offices closed, and it was announced that most businesses would be shut the next day. All flags on ships in the harbour were flown at half-mast. All theatres were closed that night, something that provoked a letter to the editor from someone who called themselves a moderate drinker. He was outraged at the theatre closures being criticised by a local publican. Sir, your correspondent John Joseph lectures you and the management of theatres because the latter have had the common decency, even while suffering loss thereby, to show respect for their dead queen by suspending for a time. I do not know whether another opportunity may offer on the day of the burial. If it does, John Joseph and all others interested in hotels may rest assured that workers of all grades do not consider whiskey and beer drinking an absolute necessity on a day of national mourning. A crowded special service in memoriam was held at St Paul's Cathedral. A short address was given by Archdeacon Robinson from Ezekiel chapter 21 verse 26. Thus saith the Lord God, Remove the diadem, take off the crown. Down the road at the Salvation Army's Dowling Street Hall, about 500 people gathered for an impressive memorial. It was reported that the Army's excellent band rendered appropriate sacred music and a large congregation joined in singing Her Majesty's favourite hymn, Abide With Me. On the day of the funeral, government buildings, churches and even many private houses were draped in black. Businesses of all kinds were shut. Railways were ordered not to run. Office picnics and bowling competitions were postponed. Every church seemed to be having a memorial service, and crowds dressed mainly in black could be seen crowding into these services. The mayor invited all citizens to wear some token of mourning 
for at least a month. Queen Victoria had been a widow for 40 years. During that time, she had formed a friendship with her Scottish attendant, John Brown. He had entered her service as a gilly or gunloader and was later often at her side. The evidence that they became lovers is weak. However, the Queen was buried with a lock of Brown's hair, his photograph, Brown's mother's wedding ring, given to her by Brown, along with several of his letters. The photograph, wrapped in white tissue paper, was placed in her left hand, with flowers arranged to hide it from view. She wore the ring on her third finger of her right hand. Her son, Edward VII, destroyed all statues she had erected to Brown's memory. Today's tabloid press in London would have made a meal of all that. Fortunately, during her reign, the press was much more discreet. This is Bill Southworth reporting. In part two of a report about the practice of horsewhipping cads, Gregor Campbell covers the court case which arose when Charles de Vere Teshmaker was horsewhipped by John Gibson Smith. The cause of their dispute was an earlier whipping that Teshmaker had given Smith at the Clutha Ferry. The Timaru Herald reported in July 1866, horsewhipping in Dunedin. The following report of a case of the above description, heard at the Magistrates Court Dunedin on Tuesday, we take from the Daily Times. John Gibson Smith was charged with having assaulted Charles Devere Tashmaker. Mr James Smith said that the defendant did not deny striking the complainant, but great provocation could be pleaded for what had been done. The judge, Mr Strode, thought it would be necessary for the magistrates to hear the facts. Charles Devere Tashmaker. Between one and two o'clock yesterday, or twelve and one, but I don't really know which, I was crossing Prince's Street when someone came up behind and struck me. I turned round, and as the person who struck me went by me, I saw that it was that man there, so I knocked him down. And in order to keep him, until a policeman came up, I sat upon him. I didn't want to have to knock him down again. He struck me with a whip, I believe. No policeman came, and as the crowd interfered in his behalf, I wasn't able to keep him, and give him in charge. I was struck from behind, and I did not see the man until after he struck me. No, the blow wasn't a very severe one. Yes, I sat upon him till the people interfered. I know it would be rather troublesome to knock the man down again, and therefore I wish the court to settle the matter now. Yes, I saw that I was assaulted from behind. Swear it? Well, I certainly didn't see him in front of me, and I was under the impression that he must have been behind me. No, I don't swear it positively. I haven't eyes in the back of my head, so I can't, you know. Mr. Smith. By Mr. Smith. You are on your oath now, sir, and you will be good enough to behave yourself properly. Am I misbehaving myself, sir? Judge Strode. You certainly need not have given us the unnecessary information that you had no eyes in the back of your head. Cross-examination continued. I will not deliberately swear that the defendant struck me from behind, but I am under the impression that he did so. 
He certainly did not accost me before he struck me. I heard his words as he gave me the blow. He did not then refer to my having assaulted him at the Clutha Ferry, but he did so afterwards. I will not swear that he was not beside me when he struck me. I only know that he did not come in front of me. I can't tell with what part of the whip he struck me, for I did not see it. Oh yes, I felt it. Did I give him any provocation? When? Within a reasonable period? I don't know. I would rather you would name the time. No, not in April. I think it was on the 30th of March, or it might have been the 28th or the 29th. What provocation did I give him? I whipped him. Judge Strode. You mean that you struck the defendant with a whip? Yes, sir. No, it was not a similar whip to the one he whipped me with. Quite different. If I am to explain the circumstances under which I whipped him, where would you like me to begin? At the place where I did it? I had better begin before that, perhaps, because he gave me provocation. Mr. Smith. Did you not, on stepping out of the coach at the Clutha Ferry, rush upon Dr. Smith, who was a bystander, and assault him with a whip? No, you are wrong. He was standing about 200 yards from the coach and standing in the centre of the road with another man. I walked up with a man who had been my overseer, who was waiting there with a whip for me. When I was within about 20 yards from that man... I borrowed the overseer's whip and gave him my stick. Then I took hold of the man by the collar and I whipped him. Yes, after that he assaulted me yesterday. I am not aware that I did anything but sit on him after I knocked him down yesterday. I did not kick him, that I will swear. Perhaps he fell upon some stones and so thought that he felt me kicking him. Mr Strode said that it was high time that a stop should be put to these unseemly exhibitions in the public streets. Persons moving in the positions of life of the complainant and defendant really ought to know better than behave in such a manner. If they would quarrel, they should not insult the public by fighting in the principal street of the city. An assault had been admitted, and a pretty exhibition the affair seemed to have been altogether. There was evidently a strong feeling still between the parties, so the magistrates would take it upon themselves to require each party to give security, himself in £100 and two sureties in £50 each, for keeping the peace for six months. The parties would have to find the sureties before leaving the court. This was done in a few minutes, and the court was adjourned. I'm Gregor Campbell, as yet not horsewhipped for Heritage Matters. Sweet, sweet memories you gave me. You can't beat the memories you gave We take things such as electricity for granted these days. But it was not so long ago that some farms on the Tyree Plain had facilities that seemed more like part of the 19th century than the 20th. Judy Southworth, in the first of a new series we're calling Memories, interviews someone who spent their childhood on just such a farm. I'm talking with Ivan Gamble from Mosgiel. Ivan was born in the middle 40s, and his life was a little different for most in the area because his family chose not to link up to electricity. 
The family had a dairy herd on the farm at Riverside near Outram, a farm taken over from his grandparents. The main thing in the house was the shacklock coal range, the big shacklock coal range. It was going 24-7. It had one side of it, it had a, a water jacket with a tap on it. And of course, as long as you had the fire going, you always had hot water. Uh, the house itself was three bedrooms, and there was a fireplace in every room. The lighting was kerosene lights, and uh, they were no problem. The kerosene lights were quite good. And of course, going into uh, the bedroom at night, we had candles. So uh, Dad and them, Uncle Charlie always used to be mad on football. They'd be away to the football on a Saturday, and anyway, they'd call and have a few drinks. And of course, Mum and Auntie would get the cows in, which was 60 or 70 odd cows, whatever it was. But they couldn't start the engine. They had a big stationary motor with a cranking handle on it. So they'd be waiting there at 5 o'clock coming. Oh, well, they'll try and start it. So Mum and Auntie thought they'd try and start it. They cranked round, but it was a bit of a knack. You cranked it round, and as soon as it fired, you pulled the handle off. But they fired, and because oh, it gave them such a fright, and started, they left the handle on, and the handle was flying round and round. And only them saying to us, "Now, don't you go in there, you kids. Don't you go in that engine room because it's going. You know what I mean? Because you could all of a sudden you hear a crash. The handle would fly off and round the room." <laughs> How did you get to school? Well, that was quite interesting. I start, I was about six when I started school, mainly because they had trouble getting me, but my mum actually, for the first three months of school, she took me on the bike and biked on the back of the carrier up to Wiley's Crossing on the, with the uh, cushion on the back. It was about five miles up the road and, and uh, back and forwards, but she actually used to do it twice a day, really. They got us this horse and cart. And but uh, my cousin had an older brother, and he was uh, in charge of the cart, horse and cart. So he uh, actually got it and uh, rode us up. The took us to the school. But Wallace Crossing School in those days it was quite big. It had a forty-acre block, and had quite a bit of land with it. When we used to get to school, we used to unhook the, the pony and let him run, and there was all paddocks and gorse there. And anyway, the problem was sometimes when the school bell rang to come home, the pony was quite old and it was quite cunning and he used to hide in the gorse and uh, we'd go out to catch him and he'd run away but we couldn't catch him because he used to have children on but we used to have to get the school teacher out to catch the horse for us so she'd catch the horse and then we had no trouble getting home because you'll always shoot home. But we did have one problem with him and that was occasionally he would jib going over the Silver Stream Bridge. And he'd go there, he wouldn't go over, and we couldn't get him, and George couldn't get him to passion away to get him to go over. And of course, we'd head back up, head back home again, so we'd be coming back up the driveway, and Dad would be coming out of milking cows. What are you doing back home? Oh, Tony won't go over the bridge. Righto, so Dad would turn around, give him a smack on the backside, and away he'd go. The school was very much run on Christian principles when I think back on it now because we used to go there in the morning, the school bell would ring and we'd all line up outside the school and then we'd actually march into school and then we always used to say the Lord's Prayer at school for school and then we'd sing three or four hymns before we started school so this happened every day. And uh, yes, that was, uh, and I can still remember, <laughs> they they taught us to sing O Come All You Faithful, one of the hymns in Latin, would you believe? And I can still remember most of it to this day.
Another thing that uh, used to amuse me was, uh, cause in the winter time, cause there was no heating in the school, they had a big pot belly stove, and we all used to bring little bottles of milk, and cause we used to bring more than big bottles of milk, cause we're off a dairy farm, and then at lunch, just before lunchtime, we had a great big black pot on the pot on the pot belly, and we used to put all the milk in, and I used to boil up the milk, and then I think the education board had cocoa. And we used to have hot cocoa drinks for uh, for our lunch and stuff like that. And uh, another another thing they had there was uh, we had a swimming pool. They we got us uh, we built there, and of course there was no changing sheds. Uh, the the boys used to change behind a gorse bush over by the pool, and the girls used to change in the schoolroom. Part of the farm, your father and, and mm. his brother farmed, mm. was quite swampy and often flooded in winter. What did that mean to you, the flooding? Uh, well, actually, the flooding, actually, I quite enjoyed it, really, because one of the, one of the things that used to happen was when the, f- the flood started coming over, it would come over the bank at Riverside, over the Tai River mainly, and when it flooded, it would take about four or five hours for the water to really build up on the road so if my uncle that used to live right beside the river he used to keep an eye on it quite regularly and if he seen the river starting to overflow he they knew it was gonna uh, flood so he'd they'd come down and get the car out and they'd shoot up to Mosgill and they'd get groceries and whatever because they knew they'd be came you know in for two or three weeks but also if we're at school we used to get a knock on the door and the uh, the uh, teacher would come to say the gamble children can they come out please and then they'd take us out of school and they we used to go back home because they used to get us back home before the water came over the road but and miss burn and miss nine they were pretty cunning crafty old girls and they always used to know oh, well you gamble children you won't be coming back we'll give you some we get we had homework to do before we come back but uh yes so, so we could be away from school for oh, a couple of weeks i suppose Till the water cleared down, but it was. Uh, but I mean, I can still remember my my dad actually when I was a wee bloke getting me out of a bed. I don't know how old I was then, but I remember him picking me up and looking out the window. And right round our house, it was looked as though we we're living in the middle of a lake. I thought it was wonderful. This water all around us. I remember Dad just saying that one of the time they had some sheep um, uh, marooned on one of the paddocks. And they went round and had a look, and the sheep were in water about, or just up to the knees, but they're all about 30 or 40 sheep all together. But on the sheep's backs, would you believe, was rabbits standing on the sheep's backs. <laughs> <laughs> Clever rabbits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. Um, what, what did you, no TV, no computers, what did you do when you weren't at school? Uh, went at school, well, there's always things to, to do. We all used to go eeling. Down in the pond, there's a lot of eels and that. We used to go fishing, uh, bird nesting. We had tree huts and we used to, oh yeah, all sorts of things. But I can always remember when I started riding a bike and uh, I, I couldn't actually ride it much. But actually, I got riding, and my cousin, she up the road, she started on the same day. So we decided we'd come down the road because she lived about a mile away from me. So we come down the road and seen each other, but we couldn't stop. So we just bike right past, it, fell off, and come back. Your sister Sylvia contracted polio in the nineteen mm. fifties. What do you remember about that? Oh, I can remember time? that quite quite vividly actually, because I can remember being ill for 
oh, quite a few weeks. And anyway, uh, there was one afternoon the doctor come down and there was a great to and fro in the house. And the next thing, the ambulance arrived. And they took her into the ambulance and it was about four o'clock and it was just on when they started milking the cow. So mum and dad, they couldn't actually milk the cows, but my uncle and auntie were there and they done the milking and and the way they, they went into the hospital with the dad took the car and think mum went in the ambulance. And anyway, the my uncle and auntie done the milking and then they said, oh, you better come on back up, took me back up to their house for tea. So we went back up to the house and we were sitting in front of the fire, then the big room, the fire going, whatever. Next thing, mum and dad come in and we'd hear them talking out in the kitchen. And yeah, but mum was sort of crying. She was in hospital for many months, many months after that. And actually one of my cousins actually was nursing in the hospital at the time. And she used to go and see, but she, Sylvie was in isolation. And of course, and we used to, mum used to go in bike up and get the train into town and see her every, every day but she had to stand at the door and then we used to go in on a Sunday and we used to stand down on the street and Sylvie used to come to the window and she could wave at the window but anyway no she was in hospital for many months and then when she came out she couldn't couldn't walk at all she had irons on her legs and crutches and oh it was terrible and anyway she got his mum massaged her legs and potted around, but eventually she come right. She eventually, well, she, she could walk, but she, she grew, well, she recently died a couple of years ago in her 80s, and she had three children, so, uh, but I mean, and then when I think about it in those days when that epidemic was on, it was quite, it was quite common to, you know, go to the movies or walk up the street and there would always be some chilled kids getting along with irons on their legs and it was very common to see that sort of thing. But when the farm was sold, one of the big changes, we went to Mosgill, bought a dad and then bought a house in Mosgill, and we got in this house and it had electric lights, which we thought was great. So we wandered through the house switching the lights on and off, electric lights. This is wonderful. And mum had a washing machine for the first time in her life. Mum had an electric range, would you believe? It was amazing. She didn't have to put coal on the range. And she had a washing machine. And then, for the first time in her life, she had a fridge, a refrigeration. Wow. This was just... She, she thought she was in heaven. She thought it was wonderful. And uh, so I think it was a really happy time for the, that in the life. They'd worked hard. And they'd enjoyed life. The Although there was, of course, no television in those days, people on farms made their own entertainment. Today, Ivan's a dab hand on the mandolin. Judy Southworth was talking to Ivan Gamble. This programme has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members. It can be contacted at southernheritage.org.nz. That's southernheritage, all one word, .org.nz.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.